Hey, Strange New Worlds listeners, it's Mike Wong, and this is going to be my last episode before the Thanksgiving holidays, so I just wanted to say how grateful I am for each and every one of you. Whether you're listening for the very first time today, or have been following this podcast from its inception nearly two and a half years ago, it's you, the listeners, who have motivated me to continue creating content about the intersection of science and Star Trek. It brings me so much joy every time someone tells me that they're enjoying the podcast, and nothing tops the feeling of when I hear from one of you that you've learned something new as a result of strange new worlds, be it about the natural world, technology, culture, or, as in the case of today's episode, history. Today, my special guest is Dr. Andrew Rader an aerospace engineer and mission manager at SpaceX. I met Andrew very briefly several years ago at a Star Trek convention, but finally got to interact with him properly earlier this year at the Los Angeles Comic-Con, where we sat next to each other on a panel called Our Sci-Fi Future. In addition to his love for science and engineering, Andrew is a huge history nerd and is the author of the new book, Beyond the Known, How Exploration Created the Modern World and Will Take Us to the Stars. The book's fourth and final section is called Becoming Star Trek and examines the technologies and incentives that may one day launch our civilization into space. Andrew sent me an advance copy of his book, which is now available wherever books are sold, and when I was done reading it, he joined me via subspace communication to chat about how we all got here and where we're going. Enjoy. Andrew, let's begin with your Star Trek origin story. How did you discover Star Trek and how much have you seen? I think I've seen every episode of Star Trek and certainly every movie. Actually, there, there may be a few episodes of the old series that I haven't seen. Uh, that's probably true. Uh, I discovered Star Trek in a video store, I think. I remember the first Star Trek movie I ever saw was Wrath of Khan. That was the first Star Trek of any kind that I ever saw, which for, I think I was probably like seven years old. It was pretty scary, I thought. Uh, but, you know, very exciting at the same time. And I think I saw it either in a video store or my brother just brought it home. I think he he kind of liked Star Trek first. And then I started watching it with him. And he's only a year older, but he generally led on these things. Uh, so, yeah, definitely Wrath of, Wrath of Khan. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, the Wrath of Khan is a great introduction to Star Trek. You really can't do much better than that. Then I discovered that the first one was kind of boring. <laughs> yeah, okay. So I did an internship in Washington, D.C. many years ago, uh, and they had these free Star Trek screenings outdoor uh, in, in the beautiful weather in the D.C. summer in the evenings. And I decided I would bring all my friends that I'd met in that internship to these Star Trek screenings. And of course, they started with the motion picture and I brought everybody. Uh, they were all bored out of their minds and almost nobody came back for the rest of them. There was just one other person who was really into Star Trek who uh, sat through all the rest of the movies uh, with me that summer. But yeah, that was a mistake. I should have started them off with The Wrath of Khan. Yeah, it's a little slow, but I like the first scene a lot. It's the first time you have 
Sarek's father playing a Klingon, and he plays a Romulan, a Vulcan, and a Klingon. And he, I don't know. He used to be the first person who has done all that. I don't know. Probably Jeffrey Combs has done all of them and more <laughs> now. But yeah, yeah. But back in the day, there was this trivia question about uh, Mark Leonard is his name. Mm-hmm. So he was the Klingon at the start, and also it's the first time you see the Klingons in the new makeup. In the next gen, basically, makeup in the Star Trek motion picture. Do you have opinions about the Klingons' new makeup in Discovery? I don't like it. I don't really like when they change things, I guess. I, I, I mean, I guess I grew up with the movies and Next Generation, so any deviation from that I'm not a fan of. I don't know if people in the old series were really offended when they updated the Klingons for the movies, essentially, and, and eventually Next Generation as well. Probably they weren't, but for some reason, I guess I am a little like, it's just unnecessary. I don't, the Klingons look great in the movies and Voyager and Deep Space Nine and and stuff like that. So why would, why would you change them? I don't really get it. I mean, they're just messing with things for no particular reason, in my opinion, but I guess I'm becoming a curmudgeon. So I don't know. (laughs) What do you think? (laughs) Um, Yeah, I was a little bit off put by it as well, because I had, you know, grown up with the, the whole era of TNG, Deep Space Nine, Voyager. And, and after I saw the first couple of episodes of Discovery, I just wanted to like cuddle up with Worf and be like, yeah. where's my old Klingon? Totally. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah that, I mean, I, I've, I've gotten used to it. I've, I've gotten used to the idea that Discovery is a sort of visual and uh, artistic remake. You know, even the Enterprise doesn't look the same. So... And then I, I sort of rationalized it to myself saying, look, if, if uh, you know, if different actors can play the same characters, then a slightly different model of the starship can still be the Enterprise and slightly different looking Klingons can be Klingons. That's totally true. But the reason that they get different actors is usually because they're old or dead. Like, I would prefer, to be quite honest, that Discovery was like the Enterprise did look the same. Maybe not the same as the old series, but the sweet spot, <laughs> the next gen or, or the, the movies, basically something like that although i guess then you know probably the artistic community doesn't have that much to do on the new series so yeah i mean yeah well we can keep spiraling down this spiral forever but we need to talk about your book (laughs) so uh yeah this was a wonderful read beyond the known how exploration created the modern world and will take us to the stars this is a, a really fascinating topic, the the small topic of the history of human exploration. <laughs> and I'm, I'm really yes. curious about how history kind of interweaves with your engineering side, because you have a PhD in aerospace engineering from MIT. You work as a mission manager at SpaceX. So let's, let's I guess, talk about your engineering stuff a little bit first, and then we can work in the history. So first of all, did Star Trek inspire your pursuit of engineering in any way? I think so. Yeah. So Star Trek definitely inspired my general interest in space and science. I would say that that's definitely true. The thing is, I would consider myself a born-again space enthusiast. So when I was younger, I wasn't that interested in real space. I was kind of just interested in flying the Starship Enterprise and jumping from star to star and meeting the aliens. And I kind of was like, well, you know, like the astronauts, they kind of go to the space station. Well, that's not that interesting. Uh, I didn't think real space was very interesting. But the book is, in a way, sort of an answer to the question I had when I was young is, why is space important? What we can do with what we have? And, and I think a lot of science fiction misses this 
transitory period between where we are now and how we're going to get to a Star Trek future. So that's what I wanted to focus the last part of the book on is, is how we become Star Trek. How do we, how do we get to Star Trek? Because I think the expanse actually does a pretty good job of this, which is the near term future based on technologies that we can envision today expansion into our solar system. And I think that's a really critical step. And if you look at the history of exploration and just the history of technological progression, it's not that we invent things just kind of out of nowhere. When I was in high school, I was really into science, and people would ask me what I wanted to do with my life, and I said, invent warp drive. But the thing is, you're never going to invent something like that without having the incentives in place, right? I think this is why exploration is so important, is because it's an arms race where exploration, you go out and you push your boundaries, and it creates the incentives to develop our technology. Then we use that technology to expand our boundaries ever further. And it's just that it's this process of challenging ourselves that creates these incentives that drive technological progress. And that's how it's always worked. If you look at the history of exploration, it's kind of the same thing. I mean, it's we started out in Africa, and then some of our ancestors chose to leave and, and travel great distances and they gain access to new food sources and resources and, and it's just constantly since there people who challenge their horizons have fared better and gained a benefit. Right. So as you say, history teaches us that exploration goes hand in hand with developing new technologies and you are playing a big role in helping develop the technologies for making spaceflight a lot easier over at SpaceX. So can you tell us a little bit about what your work at SpaceX entails? Not that much. (laughs) (laughs) But but I will say that this is specifically why I decided to join SpaceX and sort of made it my mission, because I think that the key factor in expanding humanity into the cosmos is to reduce the cost of launch and to make space much more accessible. And I was sort of thinking about what I wanted to do, and I did grad school, and I was really interested, you know, obviously in, in developing rockets and space and stuff. And I was actually studying human spaceflight and how to develop better spacesuits for Mars and the moon. But I was sort of thinking, like, what's the point of developing strategies to keep humans alive in space and for, for long periods of time if we're not sending humans into space for long periods of time? What do we need to send humans into space for long periods of time? Access to space, improved access to space, a reduced cost. And I had the opportunity to go on a tour of SpaceX back in 2010, so about nine years ago. And I was just amazed. I already worked at a space company at the time, but I was just completely amazed that these guys are really building stuff on the factory floor. And you can see it right in front of you. You can touch the hardware, and it's a very interactive place. And it's just so dynamic. Engineers who are designing stuff on their computer will go down and look at the actual hardware on the floor. Oh, this is how it works. Sometimes seeing things and touching things makes a huge difference in understanding it. And certainly, I think it makes a huge difference in motivation. So I was just totally inspired, and I made it kind of my mission to uh, to do that. My, My role, so I manage space missions, as you say, mission manager. So currently, I manage a couple of launches. One is uh, Space Telescope, which is really cool, XP. And another one's DART, which is to crash a spaceship into an asteroid and divert it and save the planet. Although this one is not planning to hit the asteroid. But yeah, but DART DART is a really cool mission. Um, So some asteroids have moons. And so the mission is to hit the moon of an asteroid, another smaller asteroid, and divert that and because you can measure the orbital change of the moon around the central asteroid 
much more easily than you could measure the orbital change of an asteroid going around the sun, which is what most asteroids do. If you impact the asteroid with a spaceship, the amount of change of the orbit around the sun is going to be so negligible, you're barely going to be able to see it. But if you hit a little moon, the orbit change around the central asteroid is going to be pretty big. So you're going to be able to measure it. Nice. Yeah, this uh, plays right into that quote from your book where you said, if the dinosaurs had a space program, they'd probably be still around. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. But I really do think that the, the, I mean, people give all kinds of reasons and I end up doing it in the book also why I think going to space is important. But I really do think that the main reason is just challenging ourselves. I think that's sort of the moral of the book in a sense that it's what our ancestors have always done. Challenging ourselves, by definition, exploration is being at the leading edge of technology and being at the leading edge, you force yourself to develop new technologies and, and solutions to problems that you didn't necessarily know existed. I mean, if you think about discovery of big breakthroughs, they're almost always indirect, actually, like penicillin and uh, microwaves and <laughs> breast cancer screening from Hubble, like looking at the, um, looking for stars in, in or bl looking for black holes, actually. Uh, the algorithms they developed to look for black holes also found tumors, basically. But almost all the big breakthroughs are indirect. So just by stretching ourselves and kind of doing something difficult, we develop all the kinds of technologies that become really important. Um, but if you think also just about ships and airplanes and try to cross the Atlantic, we would never have developed those technologies if we didn't have people on the other side of the Atlantic, like for a reason to cross, basically. So people develop technologies for a reason. And I think the most important thing is that technology follows purpose, not the other way around. Well, speaking of trying new things and trying challenging new things, how did a space technology science engineering buff like you decide, you know, one day I am going to write a 300 page book? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, so I, I had written some children's books. And I met the person who would eventually become my agent. Actually, the person who was friends with the person who, who would eventually become my agent on a plane. And they said, hey, this is a really good children's book. Uh, any interest in writing an adult book? And I had sort of this idea in my head. It's sort of, I guess, maybe how Andrew sees the world, you could say. Um, but it's, I, I mean, it really is, from some standpoint, the history of humanity. And I was like, well, like, so first of all, History is not a new thing for me. I've always been super interested in history. When I went to college, I almost became a historian or almost became a history professor or something like that. But I thought, well, you know, it's kind of backwards looking rather than future looking. I'm also interested in science and, and engineering. So that kind of makes more sense. Also, it's more applicable to a career, really limited options if you become like just a history major. So I thought, well, yeah, I could do history as kind of a hobby or something like that and should probably do engineering. Um, but actually, the reason I got, got really was interested in engineering was sort of from history. I really liked historical warplanes and stuff like that. So I was really into that from a young age, and I really wanted to build my own aircraft, like World War II fighters and fly them around and stuff like that. Not even space. I actually got into space later in college, really. Right on. All right. So I read your book, and while I was reading it, one thing kept on playing in my mind over and over and over again. And that was the opening credits, the opening credit scene to Star Trek Enterprise. It's been a long road Getting from there to here It's been a long time 
which is basically a visual kind of display of the evolution of human exploration. So I was wondering, you know, as a, as a Trekkie yourself, did that go through your mind when you're writing the book? And do you find that there were inspirations from that? Or do you think that maybe you saw that and you're like, wait a minute, they forgot this very important instance of human exploration. I definitely want to put that in there. That's super apt. So I don't, when I was writing the book, I don't think I really thought about Enterprise too much. But when they asked me what the cover should look like, I sent them the video and I said, make the cover this. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. So yeah, totally. Like I I literally just sent them the Enterprise opening credits and I said, this is what I want the cover to be. (laughs) Because it's basically, yeah, right, the progression of humanity from the beginning and has like the HMS Enterprise with a Z. And yeah, yeah, totally, totally, yeah. So you write in your book, if a future civilization were judging our accomplishments by, say, deciphering the characters on the Lincoln and Jefferson memorials, they might never imagine that we'd traveled to the moon, which is a really remarkable quote, and that makes me really think, yeah, you know, like we have so little knowledge about the goings on of very ancient peoples um, because of just how little was left behind. Nonetheless, we do know about some very incredible voyages. And so I was wondering, while you were researching and writing this book, what was the most surprising or perhaps impressive act of exploration that you that you stumbled upon? Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. So I knew about some things. I knew, for example, about the story of Egyptian Carthaginian Phoenician crew who who had theoretically maybe maybe sailed around Africa. Who knows? Probably not. But you never really know. Um, but the thing that I found most surprising was probably the fact that the Polynesians, I think, probably did reach the Americas. Because if you look at the evidence, the Polynesians sailed for thousands of miles across the Pacific and settled every speck of land. They found islands far out at sea, way too far to, you know, to sea or anything like that. They managed to reach them. They got all the way to Easter Island, like 2,000 miles away from like the other nearest islands. And then if you look just another 2,000 miles, it's the Americas. And you have this line of continents running north to south. <laughs> How could you not? I mean, it's just like, it seems like, uh, I know we must remain skeptical about these kinds of things. But at the same time, I think almost the null hypothesis or the, the balance of evidence probably falls in the fact that they probably would have. Because it's just logical from extrapolation of where they are and their technology. And and then if you look at, there's there's actually a lot of circumstantial evidence with the sweet potatoes. So, so the Polynesians having sweet potatoes before the arrival of Europeans and coconuts being in the Americas before the arrival of Europeans, probably both were brought by humans. And what humans? I mean, clearly this is a seafaring people like the Polynesians and the evidence suggests that they arrived around the same time as the Polynesians would have been able to do that. And then there's other minor things like linguistic cues, connections between Quechua, which is the Incan language in South America and the Polynesians. So I was super surprised by that. I also think that if you have a seafaring people, even in Europe, let's say for thousands of years, it's kind of unlikely that they wouldn't have crossed an ocean because crossing the ocean is not that difficult. We've had people in modern times do it with little rafts and stuff like that. And even if you were, say, disabled or something like that, you can imagine like a ship drifting across. It's it's basically 
less likely that it never happened than it did happen. And this is one of the things with, you know, finding evidence for things like that. I mean, I definitely can't say and, and would never claim that they definitely did it. But all these things in history were performed and then lost, right? Or, or known and then lost. If you look at like the Roman Empire, they knew a lot about the world and they had a connection with China. They had a connection with India. They had atlases and books describing the Indian Ocean. These are the Romans like 2000 years ago. And then when Europe, when the Portuguese came and the European Age of Exploration came, they were kind of venturing into areas not that Europe had never been to, but just that they'd forgotten about. You know, we'd lost records of it and stuff like that. So, and I think even if you look at the case of Amelia Earhart, she was flying across the Pacific and disappeared. And there's a lot of evidence that she probably crashed on Howland Island, but we don't really know, which is strange because it's only you know, 60, 75 years ago, I guess now, or something, 80 years ago. You would think like we have photographs of the island and people can't really identify if the wreckage is really like from a plane or not. And there was bones recovered and it's unclear if those bones were hers. And to, to not be able to tell if an aviator of the 20th century was stranded on an island, it just like makes you think, wow, there could have been like all these other connections between the continents and, and all these other feats of exploration that people either didn't record or the records are lost. Because if you think about what we know about the ancient world, almost everything was lost. Um, when the Roman Empire collapsed and you have the Great Library burning and all this kind of stuff in Alexandria, like 95% of the ancient knowledge that we knew was is lost. And then of course you have other people like the Polynesians who never wrote down anything. So what did they accomplish? And, and what I found really interesting too is the same people, the Polynesians, well, very similar people, the um, Austronesians, basically the people of Indonesia, sailed across the Indian Ocean. I didn't know any of this, but like they colonized Madagascar, you know, 2000 years ago. And so there's people from Indonesia who are basically Polynesians having contact with Romans like 2000 years ago. I was like, wow, that's pretty fascinating. Like uh, all this stuff that I didn't really know, but all this, these old connections that existed in the world and the world was better connected by the Silk Road, by the Greeks and Romans and the Polynesians and all this stuff. 2000 years ago. And then, you know, during the European dark ages, a lot of this was lost and, and people didn't know anymore, but then it's a reconnection. So there's actually like multiple waves of connectivity of the world. And eventually we reach our modern times where we are firmly connected, probably forever, unless we destroy ourselves. <laughs> so you write about Amelia Earhart, as you mentioned, um, who is this daring and pioneering female pilot from the earlier 20th century. And you write about her travels around the globe. And as you mentioned, she famously disappeared somewhere over the Pacific. But we Trekkies know that she was actually abducted by aliens <laughs> and brought to the Delta Quadrant, right? I, I actually rewatched, yeah, yeah. yeah, I rewatched the Voyager episode titled The 37s, where this was depicted. And so all the way in the future, in the 24th century, Captain Catherine Janeway gets to meet one of her heroes from history. And so I was wondering, is there an explorer from history that you would like to meet yourself? Provided you had a universal translator that, you know, you could speak to somebody who, who doesn't speak English or whatever language you have. That's a really good question. So one thing is, many of the ancient explorers, we don't even know who they were, is the thing. So the, the book, you know, it talks about in sort of more general terms and then more specific terms as we actually have records like Captain Cook, for example, had very good diaries of his travels. Uh, that would be a good one. He was kind of a smart guy. But I would always choose someone 
further back because it's more different. This is when anyone asks you where you would travel to in time, you should always say the future, even though we're already traveling into the future, but you know, for further into the future, because you can always read a book about what happened in the past. I mean, it's not as good as going, but you're never going to find out what's going to happen in the future, like 150, 250, whatever, a thousand years. Of course, it, it's maybe more dangerous because maybe Earth is a, a nuclear hellscape after an apocalypse, but so you're taking your chances, <laughs> but uh, that's a good question. Um, is safety presumed? So if you go back and meet like Eric the Red, he was a pretty violent dude. <laughs> the Vikings. <laughs> safety is presumed. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a round trip, uh, not a one way trip. Um, I guess. Yeah. Who would you? Who from history would you want to sit down and and chat with? I think maybe like Pythias. Pythias the Greek. He's like the first scientific traveler that we know about. He's the person who first described the tides, the fact that the tides were influenced by the moons. It's this Greek guy from what's currently Marseille. And the Greeks had colonies all over the Mediterranean. And Marseille was, was one of them, uh, one of the bigger ones. And it's this Greek guy around the same time as Alexander, around 225 BCE. He traveled probably through France. I mean, this was long before the Mediterranean world had any contact with Britain or, or Northern Europe, he traveled through France or maybe he took a ship through the Strait of Gibraltar to England and he paced around England and then took a ship north of England to the Arctic. And he's the first person that we know of who described the Arctic and the land of the midnight sun and probably reached glaciers and uh, icebergs. I think that would be super interesting because he's long enough ago that the world would be so incredibly different. And just finding out what they knew. This is one of the things I really love about history is like trying to put yourself in their position and understand what they knew, what they knew about the world, what the world would have seemed like to them, what their outlook would have been. What were their? Mo I think their motivations are probably similar to ours, actually, but just trying to understand it would be really interesting. So I think Pythias the Greek would be really cool if you had an ancient Greek translator, of course. <laughs> Well, speaking of motivations, throughout all the historical examples of exploration that you described in your book, we see many different motivating factors behind expeditions. Very early on, you know, trade is a very big incentive, religion and settlement as well. Uh, but some people, you know, were just exiled and others sought adventure and later science and understanding of the natural world. So what on a, on a personal level motivates you to further the cause of exploration into space? And then also, what do you think should be the motivating factors as we step forward deeper into space? Well, I think the reason I became an engineer and why I work at SpaceX is because I want to have an impact in changing the future and making a future that we want to see. And, and it's sort of the motivational aspect of it. We're trying to create a future that makes it exciting. It's, it's worth getting out of bed in the morning. It's, an, it's a future worth living. It's like you can go and skydive through the clouds of Jupiter and all this kind of stuff. You can maybe get in your personal spaceship pod and go through the clouds of Venus. And uh, maybe we would go to other stars. That kind of thing would be super exciting to have humans on living on different worlds. And so I guess just creating the future that we want to see. So I used to be an ardent environmentalist to the point where I thought we shouldn't even do space. And, and I was kind of like, one of these people who thinks that technology is the enemy almost. But I think that's, it's, I've had a really big change of opinion on that. And I guess I think that technology is the best driver of the standard of living for all people. Obviously, you know, we have 
issues like climate change and things like that. But I do think that there are good technological solutions to that, like solar power and renewable energy. And I think eventually we will see like a sustainable future based on technology. And if you think about just from a basic level of physics, there's more sunlight that hits our planet in an hour than our whole civilization uses in a year. I mean, there's plenty of energy, there's plenty of water, there's plenty of resources. If you talk about space, there's plenty of metals and any kind of natural resources that you could ever want. It's all a matter of energy and transport and maybe energy conversion. So it's just technologies that help us harvest those materials and harvest them in a way that doesn't have a negative impact on the earth. So I think technology is a huge driver and that's sort of what motivates me. We're trying to create a future that is sustainable for all and uh, exciting at the same time. Mm -hmm. So you have a whole chapter on the glory of China and its age of exploration. And China was this mighty empire far ahead of many of its contemporaries in technological prowess. But then it stopped exploring and favored isolationism when imperial powers began to see new ideas, foreign ideas, as threatening and dangers to their own power. And so as a result, China became cut off from the outside world and stagnated technologically, and this allowed Europe to occupy the commanding position on the global stage. So do you think that there is a lesson there to be learned from history for present-day humanity, for globalization, and also for our reach to the stars. Yeah, absolutely. So I, yeah, I think exploration is super important to maintain our dynamicism in society. It's, it's what motivates us. It motivates me personally, and I think it motivates others personally, but I just mean as a society, you can have motivation as an individual or motivation as a society. And I think exploration and being outward looking is, is really important because otherwise it just stagnates. And as you say, you know, China and Europe have sort of been counterparts throughout history. Back in the Roman Empire, they were around the same population and had around the same economic output. And they knew about each other and they had envoys between each other. And it sort of progressed like that. But throughout the Dark Ages, China actually gained a relative advantage over Europe. And China was definitely the leading power in the world around 1400, if you look at it like that. But Europe chose to expose itself to the world, basically, in, in uh, it went out and, frankly, you know, conquered much of the world and things like that. Uh, but by doing that, by learning about the world, it exposed itself to all kinds of new ideas. And I think that was a really important factor in the scientific revolution. Obviously, it gained a tremendous advantage in global trade by commanding markets and uh, being able to tax people um, and control this, the flow of goods. Whereas China uh, chose to become internalized and basically stopped. It lost the incentive to progress. And so by the 1800s, it was pretty much at the same level it was in 1400. I think it's a huge lesson that uh, civilizations need to be outward looking and need to embrace new ideas and need to embrace change. And indeed, I think explore is a huge thing. I mean, I think about like the possible catastrophes that would spell the end of civilization. And I think one of the most realistic ones is that we're going to stop exploring and become too good at entertaining ourselves and decide not to go anywhere because instead of going out to space, we're just going to make movies about it <laughs> and, you know, and not really, not really do anything. Uh, just kind of uh, become, it's like the Eloy in the time machine. I think that's one of the, th that or Brave New World are like the two scariest futures for me because they're not scary. 
<laughs> because they sound like kind of almost good. And that's the problem. They're alluring, right? Like it's, it's hard to say if Brave New World is a dystopia or a utopia. It's kind of a mix of both. But it's clear that everyone's lost their will to innovate, to progress. And I think that's definitely a potential danger. It's hard for me to say if this is a realistic danger or not, because I also think by looking through history and just the nature of humanity, even from you know, prehistory and, and our expansion out of Africa and in Africa, indeed, it's hard to say whether exploration is so ingrained in our DNA that we couldn't possibly lose the will to explore, or if it's a realistic danger that we might just become sedentary and give up trying and kind of just not bother going anywhere or exploring anywhere. Very interesting. Yeah, I've, I've never really seen Brave New Worlds as a utopia, but I guess I can sort of see what you mean. <laughs> Everyone's happy on drugs all the time. They're having drugs <laughs> yeah. and sex parties. After like, Soma, they're, yeah. They're, they're, they're kind of happy, honestly. <laughs> but they're, So they're like happy on one level, but they're not satisfied. And I always thought that like you, what is happiness? Happiness is kind of like really banal. It's like you could take drugs to make yourself happy, in air quotes, but would you really be satisfied with your life and that kind of thing? I mean, if you could, if you, if you were a rat in an experiment and you could constantly ensure a supply of drugs that would constantly make you feel good and, and the drugs would never wear off and you would never have any kind of negative reaction or withdrawal or anything like that and you can constantly maintain the supply, would you do it? Nah. <laughs> But why not? You should, because happiness is just like a brain chemical, right? Like, it's just... Yeah, I don't know. But I guess I guess I'm, I'm hopeful that we can find deeper sources of happiness. I don't know. If you... Like, I'm, I'm definitely in the camp that I would like to believe that exploration is ingrained in, in our genes, for instance, that uh, it could have almost been a trait that was selected for in evolution. Oh, that, yeah, I think so, know, yeah. Those that explored opened up new niches and new technologies and, and new resources. And so that discovering the unknown, going beyond the known, uh, to reference the title of your book, you know, can bring a source of fulfillment and happiness in in a way that drugs can't. But now I can, but now you know you you've got the scientist in me thinking. Well, if it's all just brain chemistry, then, <laughs> then mm-hmm. all right, it's a tough question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, digging us back out of that philosophical hole. Um, one of the most difficult frontiers to conquer was the Arctic. In the chapter that you called Lands of Ice and Snow, you write about this British expedition seeking to breach the Northwest Passage which went horrifically wrong. And you write, quote, the entire episode was a reminder of the power of nature and reflected the hubris of the Victorian age. And so my question to you is, in this vein, do you think that there are any modern hubris in space exploration? By which I mean something that in the popular mind, maybe because of TV and, and movies that depict it, that we think is just easy. You know, we think we can just go to Mars or something like that, but it's actually way more difficult than we think. No. No. That's a good question. I never thought about that before. That's a really good question. So I do think that the public imagination of space travel is really skewed. And I, I do think, you know, even Star Trek, I mean, Star Trek is awesome. Let's just start there. But I do think it kind of presents a view of space that that makes it look too easy. I mean, all these things that they just have automatically, like gravity, 
I mean, I know there's like an artificial gravity generator, but even like a really small shuttlecraft has gravity. How does that happen? I mean, I guess they have really small artificial gravity generators, but how does that work? I don't know. <laughs> Repulsors, repulsor lifts, whatever. I guess that may be a Star Wars, but they, but clearly like the shuttlecrafts have like that kind of technology as well that basically allows them to hover. Warp drive, obviously, is a big one. Force fields. Is that even possible? Force fields that would keep out like the vacuum of space? I mean, eh. but in some areas, their technology is woefully bad, like uh, photon torpedoes. Like, uh, so why aren't they just like antimatter bombs or nuclear? Like, how can you have a ship that loses its shields and can sustain multiple photon torpedo hits? Like, what are they made of? Just like TNT? But <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Side topic. So I think that, yeah, a lot of science fiction and just the, the public understanding of space travel it probably is a little bit too easy. In terms of hubris, um, I don't know because, okay, so for one thing, you're referring to the Franklin expedition. They obviously got some things wrong, but the main mistake they made was relying too much on technology. And I think that actually is a danger because I kind of think it's more important to do what you can with what you have. An example for Mars is I think it's important to try to live off the land. Let's not try to bring all our supplies. Like the Franklin expedition failed because it tried to bring everything from its home base and tried to, you know, bring canned food for the first time and all this kind of stuff where they witnessed the Inuit living around them with very simple technology and surviving and thriving. So you know, if we go to Mars, we shouldn't try to bring everything. We should try to manufacture oxygen out of the CO2 and harvest water and that sort of thing. It's it's definitely a lesson for living off the land. Maybe, so one thing I can think about is maybe the space shuttle was a little bit of hubris because people thought that we could develop a, a machine that would easily be reusable and bring us to orbit. And, and they didn't kind of like do the necessary steps. Like I guess SpaceX's development is sort of much more incremental and we figure out how to land a rocket first and then you build a bigger rocket and that kind of thing. I hope that's not hubris, but yeah, like the space shuttle, they just tried to do everything at once and they tried to, they, they basically send out requirements. The government sent out requirements to the, like the Air Force and NASA and even, you know, for launching commercial satellites. And they tried to make a machine that would do everything. And it ended up doing none of the things very well and ended up being very expensive and overly complex. So I think that might be an example in space of, of maybe hubris. Yeah, that was a really interesting part to read about because I grew up, you know, watching astronauts fly the space shuttle. And that's all I ever wanted to do when I grew up was just be an astronaut that could fly the space shuttle. It's like I wanted my car when I grew up, to be a space shuttle, um, either that or the Delta Flyer. But yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like similar. Uh, I always Delta wings. Yeah, I always thought that um, the space shuttle was this amazing tool that I was so sad to see retired. And then reading your book, I realized, oh wow, like there were actually a lot of technical flaws with it. And that if you wanted to launch like a satellite, you had to send people into space, which is really difficult and expensive to do. And if you only wanted to launch people, then you had this like whole cargo hold that was empty or, you know, you would try to fill it with something. But yeah, I could see why that was uh, that was a mistake to do. Yeah, it was a really cool machine. I would describe it maybe as a tactical success, but a strategic failure. It was like it did the opposite of what it was supposed to do, which is reduce the cost of access to space. All right. So Getting into the space race now, you mentioned in your book that the rocket pioneer named Magnus Maximilian Freiherr von Braun, which is just an amazing name. Yeah. <laughs> um, he worked. It's good name for a dog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Von Braun worked for the Nazis mm-hmm. before he and his colleagues defected to America, where, quote, they were issued false employment papers that wiped clean their Nazi past. And this was done to propel America's standing in the ensuing Cold War. And so it really seems to me like today's space technology is just an accessory to war. Can you speak to this relationship between space technology and war? And specifically, do you think there would be a space age without the wars of the 20th century? Probably not. But but I would say that a lot of technologies are spinoffs of war, particularly airplanes. I mean, jets were invented for war, basically. I mean, they were uh, improved. And, and it's no accident that you had the dawn of intercontinental air travel pretty much immediately after the Second World War because it relied on technology. I mean, war is a huge stimulus for technological innovation, as is exploration. In fact, I was kind of thinking that an interesting topic, an interesting question is Given the balance of technological growth during war, is is war like a net benefit to humanity or a net detriment? I mean, it seems obvious that it should be a net detriment, right? Because there's tons of people killing each other. And I think certainly today in a nuclear age where we would annihilate ourselves with nuclear weapons, it's pretty obvious it's not. But uh, if you look at so many innovations throughout history, they'd come about because of competition during war. So the, the thing is that what the real motivation is, is competition, I think. And war is like to some extent, at the state level, the ultimate competition. I mean, this is another reason why European technological growth was so extreme compared to the rest of the world, is just because you had all these squabbling European states who were competing with each other. And this is why exploration took off, too, is because China had an age of exploration, but it basically just got canceled by an emperor. The next emperor decided, nah, we don't want to do that. We'll not do that anymore. But with Europe, you have all these other countries. So Columbus went to about four countries before he finally got accepted by Ferdinand and Isabella. Um, So... I can't remember what the initial question was. <laughs> <laughs> was yeah, no, you, you answered it, yeah. which is, uh, you know, would we have the space age without without the wars of the 20th century? Right. I think, no. The answer is definitely, definitely no. We wouldn't have. And because even, like, the first satellite, Sputnik. So the Russians took German rocket scientists, like von Braun, but the Russians also got some, the, the Soviets, and... The reason why they developed rockets, modern rockets came about, like the R-7, which is basically the Soyuz, which still launches astronauts to the space station, is because America had air superiority. So America had a bigger and better air force than the Soviets. And America and the Soviets are very far away. In a Cold War, if you want to be able to strike your opponent, you have to have a long-range strike capability. The Americans had that because they had bombers. They could just eh, launch their bombers from Europe, bases in Europe and bomb the Soviets anywhere they wanted. The Soviets couldn't do that. How do they reach America? The only way they could possibly reach America, especially given American air superiority, which could shoot down any bombers, was to have missiles flying through space that would deposit nuclear warheads exactly where they wanted. That's R-7. That's the first ballistic missile. And it became Soyuz, which launched people because Korolev. So I guess I didn't cover him in the book, but Korolev is very, very similar to von Braun in that he joined the Soviet space program because he wanted to send people into space and reach Mars and send humans to the moon and all this kind of stuff. But, you know, if you're a rocket scientist, where do you go to work? I mean, if it's the Soviet Union during the Cold War, you definitely go to work for the military. So they developed ballistic missiles in order to counter America's strategic advantage of air superiority. But they thought, well, we have this capability. 
how do we demonstrate it to the world in a peaceful way that will garner the respect, basically the soft power of others in the world? Let's just like as a publicity stunt, put a satellite on, like send it into space. That's Sputnik. So they're like, well, we had this ballistic missile. We could just launch a satellite, you know, just for <laughs> just for giggles. <laughs> so they did it just like totally accidental. I mean, and then you look at the de- rocket development technologies in in. America, there was a separate Navy, separate Army, separate Air Force rocket programs. Rockets are basically a form of artillery. And then the peaceful uses of rockets all came later. I mean, even today, the military is funded 40 to 50 times higher than NASA. So people often think that, uh, you know, like NASA has a huge budget or something like that. But it's, it's absolutely, completely minuscule. And I always think about, like, imagine if... America decided to, instead of having a giant military, they had decided to have, like, a giant NASA, <laughs> right? You'd have, like, spaceships traveling to Jupiter within a year or two. It's just, like, amazing the amount of resources and allocation it would, it would come to. And actually, even Von Braun. Von Braun first laid out how you would get to Mars, and he described it in military terms as a military operation. He's like, well, the challenges of getting humans to Mars is no more difficult than a minor military operation over a limited scope of like combat or whatever so it was all envisioned in logistical terms and stuff like that definitely yeah so we have all these examples of war and competition driving progress in exploration especially rocketry and, and space exploration we also have a lot of examples throughout human history of how exploration specifically colonization how that has had damaging and lasting negative effects on indigenous and marginalized populations so i'm wondering what are your thoughts on going into the future how do we make sure we keep pushing ourselves in terms of exploration without bringing one war with us and two the kind of exclusivity and marginalization and degradation of peoples that we've seen throughout the history in our past. Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, one of the best things about going into space is as far as we know, there are no indigenous populations. And if there aren't any aliens, then maybe I I actually think that's more reason to go into space um, to kind of preserve the spark of consciousness. But yeah, I mean, I hope that we're progressing in those ways. So I think fundamental human nature is never going to change. And it is what it is. It's I mean, it's just based on biological evolution. But we have on top of that culture and we have education and we have other factors that we use to kind of mitigate our worst tendencies. And the fact is the world is getting safer and this world is getting better. Like if you look at crime rates or anything like that, there are a lot of dangers and the world is obviously much better armed than it's ever been with nuclear weapons. But uh, I, I guess I'm an optimist and I'm hopeful and I'm not saying that it will... Uh, like, how do you stop military conflicts in the future? I don't really know. Interplanetary and stuff like that. Um, Arthur C. Clarke has, in in his books, he actually, I really like his descriptions of future humans who, we all start out as humans, but then people evolve based on their different planets and they maybe even modify themselves. And how do you prevent like the Venusian Martian war of 2349 or something like that? I don't know about that, (laughs) but, um, yeah, point well taken. The other thing is, you're you're absolutely right that the morality of exploration of the past is very mixed at best. And this is something I struggled with a little bit in the book. And I definitely tried to devote s- some attention to that because there's definitely negative externalities and lots of things like that. Yeah, I mean, slavery and colonization and the essentially eradication of Native Americans, all this kind of stuff. 
yet at the same time, it also leads to, you know, us being here, right? Why are we here? So, so I don't know how to wrestle with that. There's obviously pluses and minuses to everything. And I guess we are where we are. And it's kind of like Star Trek reference, the sins of the father, right? Like, I don't think people who are alive today, as long as they act responsibly, are responsible for the crimes of the past. And there definitely were. But just like morality changes, and as we learn more, we are better able to act in ways that uh, serve all humanity. Right, right. Yeah, and the subtitle of your book is How Exploration Created the Modern World and will take us to the stars. But I think you do a very good job of showing how exploration created the modern world, the present that we live in. And, you know, you mentioned to your credit, all of those side effects, you know, of colonization, of, of slavery and, and the damages to, to people. And, you know, it really makes you think, it, it makes you think about trying to weigh those pros and cons. And, you know, there isn't one be all end all answer, but it's important for us to understand the history so that we can wrestle with it and then move into the future in a better way. And speaking of moving into the future, you have a whole chapter called The Road to Mars. So Andrew, why Mars? What's the point of going into space? Are you asking me? <laughs> well, I, I, I definitely, I, I see a couple of, of different reasons to go. One is just the sheer wonder, you know, the, the romanticism of, like you said before, flying through the storms on Jupiter or visiting Venus or stepping onto the regolith of Mars. I think that would just be such a wonderful experience. But then also to your other point of preserving the human race, you know, a cataclysm might happen on Earth really at any time. And we want to preserve that spark of consciousness, as, as you so eloquently said. Anyway, so I don't know if, that, if you intended for me to answer that question, but yeah, definitely. <laughs> that's, but, that's but my feeling. I guess yeah. sort of what I mean is, uh, what's the purpose of a spaceship? In a sense, like, what is the purpose of a boat? It's not just to sail around in the ocean, it's to cross and get to the other side. It's like, why did the chicken cross the road? So that being the case, and clearly going to another planet around another star is out of the question at this point, we have to have a destination. We have to have a place to go. You don't go into space to, to hang out in zero G, at least. I mean, maybe you do for fun a little bit, but you go to space to cross to the other side. What is the other side? What are the destinations that we could possibly consider? And if you start making a list of them and look at their characteristics, Mars is clearly the best destination that we could reasonably reach. I mean, there's a pretty small list, honestly, of destinations we could reach, but Mars is the most Earth-like place we could possibly reach, with the possible exception of Titan, but I think that's pretty much out of our technology right now, at this point now anyway. But Mars has uh, some atmosphere, useful atmosphere, lots of water, lots of land, theoretically the full spectrum of resources that we could find on earth it's the only place that we know of that could possibly support human civilization basically that could sustain life long term obviously any martians martians people from earth would be dependent on earth for a while for advanced technologies like computers and stuff like that but there's no reason that in the long term within 100 years or whatever it is uh you couldn't have a civilization that could support itself and be able to produce all the resources it needs and that's I think that's why Mars is the only place that you could possibly put in that category. The moon is unsuitable for a, uh, you could imagine a space colony, I suppose, um, with solar panels and, and plants and stuff. It's just, it's much easier to go to a planet than try to build a planet. You have a lot of useful materials on Mars. You have water, you have the atmosphere, which can be 
converted into useful gases and you have regolith and soil and just bulk materials you can build things out of like bricks and stuff like that so you don't have to transport all the mass you can grow plants i mean it has a 24 and a half hour day night cycle versus the moon is 28 days 14 days of night 14 days of sunlight uh, mars has better radiation protection than a lot of places although it's not great but yeah i mean it's basically the best destination the go going to space is to cross to get to the other side the best other side is mars <laughs> that's why <laughs> That's a great answer. That's a great answer. And so say we do make that leap. Uh, we, we cross that cosmic ocean and we end up settling Mars. Where to after that? Where is the next location that we should aim for? I mean, I think it will become more apparent after we do that. But obviously, I think the moon might, be, might work. But I think sort of longer term series is a good place. Ceres is the largest asteroid in the asteroid belt, and you would have access to, obviously, basically made of water. It's like an ice cube. And you have access to other asteroids in the belt. Um, but Callisto, some of the outer moons of Jupiter are good, and Titan, I think, is kind of the most fascinating, although you need a pretty thick snowsuit. But it's the Titan is the place where you could walk around without pressurization. It's the only place in the solar system. So you could walk around in a shirt-sleeve shirt environment, but super thick snowsuit. Definitely. Yeah. It's like without, yeah, just a respirator. <laughs> 90, 94 Kelvin or so down there. It's, uh, yeah. It's yeah, yeah. And also heat transfer rates are much higher than earth because the atmosphere is thicker. So it's even worse than you think. <laughs> Whereas like a place like Mars is cold, but it, the cold doesn't really matter because the air is so thin that the heat transfer is so low right. that it barely matters. All right. And so stepping outside of our solar system now, when we decide to go interstellar, you list several options for technologies in your book, including ion engines, solar sails, and nuclear fusion. Of all of these, I think nuclear fusion is my personal favorite because it ties to Star Trek. So a fusion spacecraft might not need to launch with all of its fuel. Instead, it could sort of scoop up hydrogen from the interstellar medium using Bussard ramjets, uh, which is actually a technology that is referenced in Star Trek Starship designs. For those of you who haven't looked at a Starship blueprint in a while, imagine the Enterprise. The Bussard ram scoops are those glowing red things at the front tips of the two warp nacelles. So can you explain how a Bussard ramjet works? So interstellar space has very sparse material, but it does have some material, atoms floating around. And Bussard ramjet uh, would take, so you have to start by moving basically. And based on the motion, you obviously have hydrogen atoms come in and you would direct them with a magnetic field into a chamber where you compress them and I guess initiate a fusion reaction by cramming them together. <laughs> <for some. laughs> Actually, I'm not sure how the fusion reaction works specifically, but uh, it's basically taking the uh, hydrogen atoms in deep space, concentrating them in, in enough quantity and concentration in order to initiate a fusion reaction. So I'm not a fusion uh, nuclear physicist, but there are two f types of fusion reactions that you could use. One would heat propellant and shoot it out. And there's another one that releases specific kinds of particles. I had to actually look this one up that uh, you can actually generate thrust from. Very cool. 
All right. So I've just got three last uh, sort of rapid fire questions for you to end us for this podcast. So you write in your book that when we get to the age of enlightenment, we can see the fact that scientific exploration begins to become a stronger motivating factor in exploration in general by noting that uh, ship names begin to reflect this. So we've got the discovery and the resolution and the endeavor. Do you have a favorite ship name from Star Trek? Uh, well, I've always liked Miranda class, which is weird. I, I, we don't know what the Miranda is, but that's the Reliant. USS Reliant is Miranda class. I guess I like that name just in general and it's from Shakespeare's The Tempest. So, so I guess maybe that. Uh, Reliant's a good name, actually. USS Reliant. Do you have a favorite engineer from Star Trek? Hmm. Scotty, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. All right. And last question is, um, you end the book with this wonderful saying. Um, well, it's not the last sentence of the book, but it's in, in the epilogue that I, I just loved. And it goes, quote, if you're not breaking stuff on occasion, you're not trying hard enough. So, Andrew, what's something that you've broken recently? Ah, <laughs> ah good question. I guess I make a lot of mistakes in interpersonal things, probably you would say. Uh, so, and then you learn from them. So, yeah, this is almost like more a relationshipy question. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean to go there. But, but I think the, the key lesson is we learn from our mistakes. And I think that's definitely true for, you know, micro mistakes that I would make as well as uh, engineering mistakes. All right. Um, and then finally, where can listeners find you online? Oh, um, Twitter's good, Mars Raider at Mars Raider, and Facebook, uh, Andrew Raider. Uh, I have a website, Andrew slash Raider. You can just Google me, really, Andrew Raider. And uh, I would highly recommend, if you're interested in the book, you check out the audiobook. Uh, it was a blast to read. I guess I narrate it, so it was kind of fun. Oh, I'm you actually curious. read it? Yeah, yeah. Very cool. I have not heard it yet, so. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you for joining me on Strange New Worlds. And thank you again for writing such an amazing book. It was a pleasure to read. I learned a ton about the history of human exploration and how we're going to reach the stars. So well done. Awesome. Yeah. Glad. Um, thank you so much. History is such an important and fascinating subject. And my conversation with Andrew, as well as reading his new book, gave me a lot to think about. Like, on balance, is war good or bad? That's a question that I'd never wrestled with before. I mean, obviously, war is a terrible thing, and is a direct driver of many of humankind's greatest atrocities. But Andrew wouldn't have a job at SpaceX, and I wouldn't be a planetary scientist if it weren't for the technologies that wars have produced. How do I reconcile that? Should I even try? Even in the fictional history of Star Trek, Warp Drive was developed in the aftermath of World War III. Zephram Cochran's Phoenix was literally an intercontinental ballistic missile. A nuclear wessel, as it were. But Star Trek does give me hope that while conflict between peoples is inevitable, 
we will evolve to a point where violence is regarded as an absolute last resort, and that we will learn to explore not for conquest or to plunder resources, but to seek greater wisdom and humility. Space calls to us not as a final frontier to run around, plant flags, and claim. The universe is not made for us. It is us. We are a part of the universe, the part that can look around, build telescopes, make spacecraft, and launch rockets. We are that spark of consciousness that can get to know the forces of creation that shaped our very being and harness those forces to bring us closer to the other marvelous instances of creation in the cosmos. As Michael Burnham so wisely said in season two of Star Trek Discovery, space is above us. That's why we go, and Andrew's work at SpaceX is taking us one step closer to what lies beyond the known. I'll be back in December with at least one more episode of Strange New Worlds before the year is up. Maybe two if I get lucky. Maybe three, if all the stars align. Until then, see you out there.